0: Well, today's my birthday. I woke up this morning and I drank about a half a pot of coffee. I went down to the local Mexican joint and got me some huevos rancheros. Then about seven hours from now, I'm going to meet some friends over at the local dive bar and we're just going to sit around and talk trash. And I'm going to try to finish up all the editing of this show in the next seven hours so I can make it over there to meet them. And I don't mind working on my birthday. We all do it. It's part of being grown up. I once had a job where I stacked concrete blocks for $3.50 an hour. I did that all day long, and I did that once on my birthday. This is a whole lot better. But life's a long-ass twisting river, and I'm happy to be wading right through the middle of it. My friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Robbie Folks. Robbie is a singer and a songwriter and a fabulous guitar player and all-around musician who lives in Chicago, Illinois. And you can find out everything you need to know about Robbie at RobbieFolks.com. This might be the longest waiting period we've ever had to try to get somebody on the show. I think we first talked about having Robbie on about eight months ago, and... We had a really hard time getting our schedules together. He doesn't come to Nashville that much, and I'm not in Chicago that much. But um, it finally lined up, and Robbie came over to my living room and sat down, and he's just a really good guy. I enjoyed chatting with him, and smart guy, and seemed like a friendly, easy guy to be around. He shared some really good stories, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Here's Robbie Folks.
1: I was born in York, Pennsylvania, and uh, but my family we moved around uh, every year, like literally every year, sometimes even more, till I was uh, uh, thirteen. And by that time, we were in uh, a little town in uh, North Carolina called Creedmoor. We sort of moved uh, south and south and south, so we moved through Pennsylvania and then Virginia, and then we ended up in Wake Forest, and then in this little town in North Carolina. So, I, I halfway consider my home. Uh, Pennsylvania, because uh, my grandparents lived there, and that's where we'd go back for Christmas and stuff. And maybe other half, North Carolina, just because that's where we ended up staying the longest, and my folks stayed there for 22 years, I think, once they got settled there.
0: Was there music in your family?
1: Yeah, my dad played, my mom played, and uh, my uncles, yeah, in short, yes. And uh, so there was bluegrass when I was a kid, uh, around that area of, of Lancaster and New York, but then North Carolina—I don't know. There was—I I don't think I was as aware of it at the time when I was uh, a teenager there. But retrospectively, you know, once I'd moved out of it and looked back on it, I thought, "Oh, well, that—that's a little bit different down there." The, um, you know, I wasn't by any means raised on country music. You know, I was like listening to popular music, like all the other knuckleheads. But there was something kind of that, that tilted it different. In North Carolina, and I, I don't know exactly how to describe. I mean, country is one way to describe it. I guess it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like a country approach to to music making. And uh, you know, I found out by the time I went to college that just you know, just having played with fiddlers and having made a lot of living room music and done stuff like this just gave me a different kind of slant on music than somebody that grew up in in Long Island, maybe, or somewhere. Yeah.
0: Were there a lot of festivals uh, that you went
1: to as a kid? Oh yeah, yeah. That great. Uh, some of my greatest memories are, uh, you know, seeing Sam Bush or, or Tony Trischka, Doc Watson, or John Duffy or John Hartford and uh, the Earl Scruggs Review. You know, when I was ten, eleven, Osborne Brothers, Jim and Jesse, and you know, all these people, you know, multiple times and. Again, it was one of the things that I just kind of took for granted that, you know, summer comes and your dad takes you to festivals and well, here they are, Jim and Jesse again. And, well, that was enjoyable. But then uh, as you get distance on it, you think, wow, that was really, that was really something.
0: In southern Indiana and in Bean Blossom, yeah the Bill Monroe Festival, and my grandfather would take me there when I was a kid. And I got to shake hands with Bill Monroe. My grandfather would, you know, you need to shake hands with him. He's an important man. And uh, I had no idea. I knew I enjoyed it, but I had no idea. Did later- it
1: lodge in your mind as you were doing it, like this is something kind of above the usual experience?
0: Uh, Grandpa likes him as much as Bobby Knight, so he must be somebody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder which would win in another drag-out fight. <laughs> Bill could hit him with the Bible, and Bobby could use the chair, and uh, I think the Bible would probably win. <laughs> There's nothing to it. I got a girl pregnant and uh, not a girl, but my girlfriend of some years. And uh, and uh, so this is back when I was uh, 19 and we were, you know, we thought, well, what do we do? We were out in the East Coast and she says, well, my parents live in uh, near Chicago. So we went out there and uh, I started looking for a job and just sort of rearranged my life around Chicago and uh, and just stayed there because uh, because the kid, you know, is there? We broke up shortly thereafter, but the kid, uh, the kid stayed there, and I, and I started a new family pretty soon after, and everything's there for me right now. P- people are like, yeah, super aware of Prine and Goodman. You know, often a s- slight tangent from that, Jethro Burns, and the uh, the uh, the barn dance, of the old day. You know, Lulu and Scotty, and the others that were associated with the barn dance. But I'm trying to think of something personal that I can. Uh,
0: well, what was the barn dance? Uh,
1: well, the barn dance on uh, WLS, uh, right? I got that right. Uh, was a uh, a thing that started, I think, just a couple years before the Grand Ole Opry started, and it uh, it sort of, I guess, indicates that Chicago could, in some parallel universe, have become the center, the industrial center for country music that Nashville became. Uh, it didn't work out that way and uh, you know you could speculate why I guess a cuff Rose being here was a, a great big contributor to why the industry ended up centered here along with the opry uh, and publishing didn't didn't happen in Chicago in the same way um, but uh, and and the the talent pool in Chicago I think was a little bit uh, strange too although it's hard to say what's strange looking back in the early Opry and the the early barn dance but you know we had Lulabelle and Scotty and we had uh Bob Atcher, and we had uh, George Gobel up there, and sort of just to say some of those names, you're like, "Well, oh, those are some freaking uh, odd, oddballs," you know, uh, for a country show. Some of them. Uh, so, so I don't know, but but it's a it's it's legendary in its own right, and uh, well, man, people in Chicago are just really proud of Chicago almost in a like stop talking about Chicago way you know it's and and so you hear uh, i kind of tune out sometimes when people go on about how great like like i'll do a show up there and it'll start with a 10 minute speech about how great Chicago is shut up about <laughs> Chicago you know you start to sound defensive after a while or insecure um so it's i think there is awareness of that it, you know among the country people for instance up there that it's not Nashville and is never going to be it doesn't have a the pool of awesome talent that Nashville
0: has, but uh, but it doesn't have to be.
1: Well, I guess it doesn't have to be. I mean, sometimes I wish it were in just country music terms that I would have more, uh, you know, soulmates up there. Uh, you know, instead of the ten or twenty that I have, it'd be great to have, you know, a hundred like you have down here or whatever. Uh, but anyway, it's a big city and it has uh, some great resources of a big city. You know, it's got it's got a ton of uh, of great. Uh, high production little rooms that a guy like me can play in you know for a hundred or a couple hundred people and uh, and it's got for a big city it kind of has a a homey flavor too like when you go into a club to play you get to meet the guy that owns the club who's also the guy that booked you and wanted you there and so you know that doesn't happen in New York or LA when you go to play there Uh, you know you walk in and shake hands with the guy that, that started the place and having you play that's kind of cool oh well we were talking before i i I guess i didn't say it was the old town but for a couple years i had a a show out of there that uh probably a little bit like this very show that we're doing now but an interview and and music show and um but i got started there in uh, 1984 and uh i moved to chicago in 83 and started looking for places to play and there was a place at the time that the folk singer Bob Gibson ran. And uh, Bob, uh, I'm sure you know about Bob, but for a listener that doesn't, he was involved in the, the 50s uh, sort of white college boy folk scene. I think I might describe it. You know, Abilene was a big song of his. And uh, not to denigrate him, but that's kind, of, that's kind of what it was in my view. So um, so he opened up this club, or he was helping to manage it or something. The club was called Hobson's Choice, and it was on the north side of Chicago. <clears throat> And he had this idea that uh, that he would bring in acts, not for a night, but for a month, like for a fucking month. And so you'd get booked there, and it would be a booking like, uh, I'm trying to remember, like five nights a week, I think, for a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's like insane. Uh, and in my case, you know, I didn't have an audience or anything, so I would be booked as the opener for a month, is how I remember it. So people like Josh White, uh and Lindsay uh Lindsay hazley have i got that name right the auto harpist anyway i think that i think i got that right and others of that ilk and it didn't last real long for me the club didn't last that long with that policy it went down the tubes pretty fast <laughs> <laughs> you know, i mean it was a beautiful idea and uh you know especially if you lived in town you know and I'd walk over you know 20 minute walk and go in and do my thing night after night after night and probably pretty shitty money. I don't remember at all what the money was like. Um, but if you were from out of town, you know, what a great idea that you could stay in a town for weeks on end. And, uh, you know, but you know, it, it was insane and it didn't work anyway. Uh, so I was, um, uh, I was doing my opening thing over there and some guy from the old town school came out, Michael Miles, the, uh, the banjoist, uh, came out and he was the program guide at OTS. And, uh, And he brought me in. And that was 1984, and I stayed there for the next 12 years um, uh, teaching classes. And uh... Have you played up there?
0: I've been to a few shows up there, but I've never played there. Well, you know what it's about then. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful – it's actually – I can't think of a better place to to see a show.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, there are great places. I don't want to compare it to anything, but I played in Eddie's Attic the night before last in Decatur and and that was a uh, places like that McCabe's in Santa Monica and other places maybe Sparrow is it Sparrow Hill in Denver Swallow Swallow, Swallow Hill. Hill uh kind of compared to that in terms of like the people are just there to take it in shut up and listen and the and the room something about the physics of the room seemed like really ideally suited to what it is so uh well in the old days it wasn't in that place that we're talking about it was on Armitage Avenue during the era that I'm talking about um But the room was also kind of cool, and uh, man, uh, just a lot of great acts that that I got to see over the years, from Ralph Stanley to Ani DeFranco, and people in that kind of noisy wooden room there on Arminage Avenue. Uh, But uh, So that was kind of a home base for me for a lot of years, and and it was a a really nice social scene, nice place to, and not just with uh, musicians and other teachers, but just hanging out with a with the students you know and uh drinking with them after the class and and getting to meet people that were a little younger than i was like people in their you know young professionals people in their early 20s who were just excited to get out and play the guitar at night i kind of to me that was a, probably the most enjoyable aspect the social aspect with people that were just like excited to go out and strum the guitar in a in a <laughs> group of guitar players but that they had like real jobs or whatever uh but uh i i, I should uh i should think of that more often because that would be that would be a good inspiration for me to follow to remember just the joy of making the music <laughs> i never did move here because uh, as i said my family being centered in uh, in uh, chicago i never really felt that uh, uh i had the ability to move from there but uh but I started working down here, uh, I came down in 1993 to try to scare up uh, some work, and at the time I was doing a couple, there was a couple years where where I couldn't quite get it all um, covered with music, and I had a temp job in addition to working at Old Town. And uh, But I heard there was a gold rush going on down here with the you know, the Garth Brooks phenomenon. They were hiring a lot of writers, and they'd hired a friend of mine, uh, Jim Dewan, and uh he was working at, uh, I guess at Acuff Rose, uh, at the time. And he said, come on in, the water's fine. And it's, uh, it's a great place to work and I'll, I'll introduce you to some people. And he did. And, uh, pretty soon I had a, I had a sort of a weekly, you know, like a paid job. I like, uh, what, what a paradise it was, you know, getting paid to write songs, which I would have been doing anyway. Uh, for free, but I wouldn't necessarily have been writing, you know, Reba McIntyre pitches or whatever. So there was that aspect of it, uh, and uh, and I was, uh, you know, I, I did a song that partly touches on those years called "Fuck This Town." That's um, kind of an exaggerated, comic, uh, m- sort of truthful version of uh, of my opinion of it and what happened to me, um, but. Um, I would just want to add to that that uh, I was so determined to do a good job in that job. Uh, I was sinc- I sincerely wanted to uh, I don't know just like at any job that I would do you know whether it's washing dishes or driving the flower truck or the office temp or whatever I did over the years I, I just kind of wanted to do the job well. So I want I-, I tried to understand what it was about what they wanted. I tried to write with other writers. I tried to l- be down here about one or two weeks out of every month and and just like push at it and make it happen and so that's really uh the, the what i thought was the the depth and the sincerity of my efforts kind of fed into my ultimate frustration with w- what the hell isn't working for me and uh which which is a long boring story about the the company kind of changed hands and the new management wasn't that into me and this and that um but anyway so um what were we talking about we were talking about nashville
0: yeah well but- let me take a little bit of sidebar. You, in that song, I believe you mentioned Tim Carroll. Was, yeah. Was this the years when Tim and uh, Greg Garing and BR549 would be playing down on Broadway? Was this around that time?
1: Yeah, BR was playing uh, every night at Roberts, and I, I enjoyed seeing them a number of times. And I don't remember seeing Tim on Broadway. I'm sure he played down on lower Broadway, but uh, I saw him at some other places, and we were friends because he was working as a secretary for uh, David Wyckoff at the time was how I met him, and uh, I met some other good musicians around Wyckoff's office too, he's a lawyer down here. Uh, and BR549, who else did you say?
0: Greg Gehring.
1: I know Greg a little bit, but I met him in New York, I didn't meet him here. He had like a residency thing, and um, and I was just really, yeah, I was smitten with this whole idea of, uh, I don't know, the history of, uh, of Tootsies and the, just the antiquity of some of those bars that, you know, you could smell the horrible smells from 50 <laughs> years ago in there still, you know what I mean? It's like they hadn't cleaned the tables in 50 years. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just kind of like, a, I'm a pretty nostalgic person. And to be hanging around where, you know, people like Roger Miller or Chris Christopherson would have hung around was pretty overwhelming to me. And uh, And on top of it, to feel that I was in this moment where, you know, on the one hand, Garth Brooks was going on, and that was something that kind of, uh, revolted me um, at the time, uh, and but uh, at the same time, you had this other universe in the same small town here, where BR five four nine was threatening to sort of drag it in another and more interesting direction. Uh, I, I felt that was like an interesting moment to be in. The middle. No, I didn't. We were we started the record. The record was a. Uh, Undertaken by a fan of his, who was a lady in New Jersey that I didn't really know, but she was a person that had been on my website and had a presence there. And uh, and and anyway, she she gave me the budget from her personal savings to and the total lassitude to do pretty much what I wanted to do with the record. And this was when Johnny was alive. I think this was in 2001, maybe that we started laying it out, laying out the plans, or 2002. And I can't remember what year he died. I'm thinking. I Can't remember who the exact per- first person I called. Maybe Rosie Flores or Jim Lauderdale or you know a friend like somebody I knew that I, I felt like I, once I had Jim, I went to Buck Owens, uh, and because th- those guys knew each other well, and uh, and I got to Buck through his piano player in his band, uh, Jim uh, Shaw, and I uh, secured his participation, and once I got that, I went after George Jones, and the whole thing just kept you know snowballing along and i think this the the you know mostly what i did on that record you know was cast it and then stand back and uh but the i think the smartest thing i did um uh, in the you uh, know compliment myself was uh you know most of the choices were were good choices and the the order in which i went was like it was like well done you know cuz to start with <laughs> lauderdale and move on to owens and uh you know and and by like the fifth person of this whisper down the lane sequence, uh, I thought I can really just have anybody (laughs) I want on this record at this point, you know? So, uh, so toward the end, I, I like called Jeff Tweedy and, um, and said, uh, you know, would you do that? Would you come down and stand in a semicircle with Bobby bear and uh, Radney Foster? And, um, Oh God damn it. Now I'm forgetting who the fourth person is. Oh, well, Buck Owens was the fourth on the track. He wasn't standing in the circle, but, I said, I have this picture of you guys singing Take This Job and Shove It, kind of like a Budweiser commercial together. And he said, sure. I called Mavis Staple. She was like, sure. And it's like, I can't believe who I'm even calling on the phone. It was like unbelievable. And uh, and in a way, the, the central uh, presence on the record was Lloyd Green, who played the steel guitar on Johnny's Little Darling Sides in the 60s. And uh, at the time, again, this was like 2003. Uh, two and three thereabouts um, Lloyd uh, didn't have a, uh, a tall presence as a as a recording steel player um, I think he had had one until about 1992 and then he uh, he had an ear problem that developed and he kind of pulled back from the scene and uh, I got his number in the you know in the union book and called him at home and described the project and uh, and oddly enough I was you know you you picture these people through listening to their records and you have an idea of what they're going to be like sort of despite yourself. And his steel solos are so intense and sensational and cerebral and kind of frightening in a way that, uh, that I pictured sort of this vampire character or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I called him home and uh, of course, you know, he's the nicest. He's a gentleman. He's, uh, he's very mannerly and uh and we got along great and uh and he was and he was so into the invested in this project of revisiting these old songs most of them from the 60s that he had uh that he had really turned into into country masterworks you know Johnny singing alone was obviously crucial but the steel player was the co-star on those records so his presence on anyway, on the Johnny Paycheck record, which didn't have Paycheck singing on it, but had all these other great singers, his presence was like the thread uh that ran through the thing and uh and really made it fly. You know, now that I'm remembering it, um there was there were a couple of people that I went after that didn't end up uh being on the record, like Rosie Flores couldn't didn't work it into her schedule. Um I just remembered that uh, J.P. Morgan, the actress, I uh, I went after her, and she's one of the people that I, I didn't get to uh, to perform on it. That's that would have been kind of interesting. Uh, she had started as uh, Mary Morgan in uh, Hank Penny's band as a as a singer in the um, late forties early fifties, maybe late forties even. Is that possible? Anyway. Uh, Mary Morgan was her name back in those days and that was one of those late night thoughts you know when you when you have a record like this and somebody gives you money to do a record and you can have anything you want on it you just start like spinning these idle thoughts late at night in bed and you're like oh wow like uh, all of a sudden I could picture Johnny Paycheck on the gong show sitting right next to her you know because he'd come and do the gong show I thought she's a fucking country singer is what she started as you know she's a singer And, uh, and anyway I called her lawyer and I said, "Listen, I'd like to put JP on a on an airplane and like uh, out to Nashville and have her record all these wonderful musicians. Buck Owens is on the record." And uh, I said, uh, "I can. Uh, I think I told him, I'd, I'd pay her a thousand dollars." And thinking that he'd say two thousand, that we'd settle on fifteen hundred or something, he goes, uh, "JP won't even like get out of bed, go to the living room for a thousand dollars. What are you talking about?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, forget it.
1: there's a weird story but a guy uh, a hedge fund guy took an interest in me um, uh, some years ago and uh, he hired me to do a show and and paid me really extravagantly for it and then afterwards he was talking about he said you know I have so much money I'll uh, you know what do you like are you a car guy or what's like something extravagant that you'd like to own or like do or whatever and I couldn't think of a thing you know I I said no I, I wouldn't like to have a Jaguar or You know, I like having an old car and I got a house that I own and, you know, a a marriage and all, and a little career doing what, you know, I just couldn't think of anything that I really wanted, you know, I guess, uh, I don't know, what would you, what would you do with like, I mean, we're not talking about $10 million, I guess, we're talking about uh, tens of thousands of dollars or something is what we're talking about, or $100,000, what would you do with it?
0: If it was a silly, let's say if it's 10,000 and I had to spend it, I know me I'd stick it in the bank. Mm-hmm. It's cuz I'm cheap.
1: Yeah, that money thing's hard. I mean, when that happened to me, I I just realized that I'm kind of doing what I want to do and money, you know, isn't going to change it, you know. Some big pile of money comes into it. I don't know what I do with it. Put in the bank like you said, which is kind of like doing nothing with it.
0: Being a musician, the comfort is really, and the security is the only thing that you really seem to worry about, at least I know me. Yeah. So if it could take care of that part, then that's great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel, you know, I I talk about this with a guy that I play with a lot, Robbie Gerso, you know, and he he does have very definite uses for piles of money. You know, he thinks about it more than I do. And uh, so he's like, you know, if we had a bunch of money, we'd get a bus. I think, oh, what a pain in the ass that would be driving a bus. No, you hire the driver, and then oh no, now I've got an employee <laughs> to worry about. And it's yeah. just—it seems so easy doing what I'm doing. I like the independence. I like driving the van or the rental car myself. I like booking the hotels myself, knowing where I'm gonna be, drawing out the itineraries. I, I really like enjoy the uh, the DIY part of it and the freedom of it. You
0: know? Especially when I. When I sit back and think of how much it actually costs to hire people to do those things, hmm. I usually think seems wasteful. I'd rather have that in my pocket,
1: yeah, and know that the job's going to be done as well as you can do it, rather than just kind of trust uh, a stranger. You know, I think I'd, I'd, li- I'd like an audience. You know, is what I would like, but I don't think you can really buy that exactly. <laughs> There's people who try. Yeah, yeah, that's how you might spend the money. That's huh? like, <laughs> <laughs> The audience getting. Money. Yeah, week to week it changes. Um, for example, the last couple I've done, I started the year off with, uh, with uh, uh, I call it Bitter Ex-Beatles Night, where a quartet and I played like music where they, all the ex-Beatles were angry at each other from 1970, 71, around there. And then the next week was an improv com- comic actress, Tawny Newsom and I did a show together. And uh, the week after that was uh, jazz interpretations of Carter family music. And then last week was... Uh, uh gee what was last week oh last week was an irish fiddler liz carroll next week is ray price music with a seven piece thing so it's really like it's radically different week to week which is why i always uh post on my site what it's going to be so that nobody will travel a distance and then be disappointed like oh i didn't expect like you know free jazz versions of carter family music <laughs> i just wanted to hear songs from your records uh, or something it's almost never songs from my records but it's a chance to uh, collaborate with people that I want to collaborate with and uh, play with friends in Chicago that I otherwise wouldn't get much of a chance to play with. Or if I think of a a theme or an idea or like, man, I'd really like to like explore the songs on street legal by Bob Dylan was what I thought one time and uh, like recast those songs and learn the lyrics. And so yeah, all these like silly ideas that occur to you, you can just, you know, flesh out there they are on stage a week later.
0: Hideout's a wonderful venue for that too. Sure is. Uh, how much uh, how much preparation do you have to put into? It each just others?
1: varies with every show. I mean, uh, like playing with Liz, the Irish fiddler that I mentioned, uh, is for me kind of challenging because I'm not an Irish player, and the you know the right hand techniques alone of that of that um, music, you know, guitar accompanists is is really uh, just kind of technical and hard. So um, preparing for her shows takes me, you know, I, I put aside you know a good part of two weeks to work every day for two weeks on it. And other shows will just, you know, be, you know, five or six hours of getting ready, you know, the day of.
0: That's really commendable, the work ethic that that takes for...
1: Well, it's self-centered is all it is. I mean, it's uh, it's an indulgence for me. And so it's, it's, it's presumably I'll get to be a better musician from doing all this stuff. I don't know if that really has proved to be the case. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's... it's uh, you know how it is in music. You get you get in these ruts where, you know, I am this thing and I do that and I do it all day long, you know, especially if you're guys like you and me making records and writing the music. But to throw yourself in with Irish players or with, you know, people outside your field and to be forced to do something there, that's, that's where you really have to, uh, you know, paddle hard. So I don't know where that I don't know where the drive comes from. I think it probably comes from getting older, you know. It's like, well, here comes death. It's getting closer and closer. And I just want to <laughs> think hard about what I really want to be doing here. And what I want to be doing is playing the guitar and learning more about music. Like every day I want to like get at the music and uh, and 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 try to push an, an inch farther because it really is hard when you get older to like deal with your aging brain and, uh, and to get the enthusiasm and the and the time that you know just the time of you know hours of the day to to dedicate to it so uh anyway so having the out there and ha- having those kind of like short-term goals week by week is really uh the proximate cause of my getting up and going after it hour after
0: hour on the guitar you said you played eddie's attic the last night two nights ago yeah okay so you been in town and you're playing tonight at the station inn that's right So when this airs, it'll air next year, and (laughs) it'll be a memory. (laughs) Come down the station, in folks. (laughs) I'll be uh, sitting in the back. In the uh, there's some old bus seats in the back that were out of Lester Flat Earl Scruggs tour bus. Oh, okay. um, Along the back wall, so I try to get those seats. Are you kind of come tonight? Are you saying? Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to. Oh no! I got to be good.
1: Oh no! No no. I I was going to phone it in, Otis,
0: but now. I appreciate you stopping by and chatting with me in my living room. Man, thanks. It's been so fun. Hopefully, uh, I will see you tonight and we'll have a good time. Okay. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Robbie for coming over to my living room here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Robbie at RobbieFolks.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.